Hebrews 13. Say, let's uh, open it there to, we're going to read congregationally. Verse 22, and may I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Let's all read it aloud. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22. It's on the screen if you need it. Ready? And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Let's pray. Precious Lord, and indeed you are precious to us. We stand before you today wanting only what you have for us and wanting all of it. And so as we uh, ponder and consider this holy writ, the words on these pages, would you speak to us, your people, direct our lives, cause us to know your great grace, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Proverbs 22.17 says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to knowledge. Proverbs 23.12 says, Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. But it is also true that in the book of Proverbs, this wise fact was stated. Proverbs 10.19, if you're taking note this morning, says this, In the multitude of words... Sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 10, 19. In other words, when someone just goes on and on and on and on and on and on, sin is not lacking. But wisdom is when someone is able, submitted, willing, under the power of the Holy Spirit to restrain their lips and exercise wisdom. I am convinced, as reading through this last chapter of the book of Hebrews and, and following what Pastor Austin has done with you guys in, in my absence, taking you through the end, the last couple of chapters, I think he started at 11, that here in chapter 13, and he left off with you on verse 6 last week, that the author of the book of Hebrews was convinced that I need to peel down what I'm going to say to just a few words. Like taking that orange and stripping it down to where you just have that beautiful piece of fruit. He, he's come to this point. He knows he's drawing the letter to a close. He knows he has covered uh, phenomenal, fundamental 
Christian theology and Christian character, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, uh, in a phenomenal way so that the Hebrew to which he is writing, to the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, can understand now what it means to walk with Christ, the Messiah, and be saved and not any longer depend upon the old covenant. And so he, in chapter 13, of course, he he began with these vignettes, we'll put it, spiritual vignettes, character vignettes, Christian vignettes, of which Pastor Austin talked about last week in verse 1, the continuance of brotherly love there, chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, he went on to remind them to not forget the prisoners, people who are in prison. Uh, he went on to talk to them about being careful how they treat strangers because they might be entertaining an angel uh, in verse uh, 1. He talked to them in verse 4 about marriage. And sexual relationships between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, under the covenant of marriage and within the bonds of marriage, that sexual relationship, the marriage bed, he says, is honorable, is is desirable, it is a good thing. It's it's not some dirty secret that you're supposed to, you know, not... uh, talk about or think about or have any thoughts on, but it's to be enjoyed between a husband and wife. But contrary-wise, that sexual relationships outside of the bonds of marriage is sin. And sexual relationships between a man or a woman who's already married to someone other than their spouse is adultery. And that as much as the marriage bed is honorable that God will judge. There's a consequence. There's, there is a consequence for those who are Christians who willingly enter into such kind of relationship. He deals with it. He reminded them in their uh, early vignettes that the conduct of a Christian is to be without being filled with covetousness, verse 5. Not to continue to go down this path of wanting this, you know, striving for that. They've got it, so I should have it type of mentality. Boy, here in the West, does that permeate our society by way of media and culture and everything else. Talk about keeping up with the Joneses. Because he reminded them in verse 6 that it... You should be able to be bold and say, it's the Lord that is my helper. What can man do to me? And so we pick it up this morning. I'm calling this many clear instructions with very few words, part one. Because I'm not sure how far we'll get. I know we're not going to finish the chapter, so... Just resolve that. I'm not sure how far we'll get. I hope to get through three of these next vignettes with you this morning, beginning with in verse 7. If I can draw your attention to verse 7, which says, The first one this morning is that 
the Christian, the Hebrew Christian, including, is to remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. We'll stop right there. The words that hit me in this verse really were remember, uh, the word rule, the, rem- the word follow, uh, also considering their conduct. And so looking them up, the word remember simply in the original language mean, meant to, to reflect, recollect, or be mindful of. In other words, don't just forget that individual, but remember them. Uh, think back to the, the time in which this is written and the way in which this has been communicated to the early believers in the Christian church. We have something today. I don't, I don't know. I, I have a hard time embracing it, but I know the heart of many who do can be very genuine and good in it. But we have this thing called Pastor Appreciation Month. Right? I think I've even gotten cards once in a while. (coughs) Excuse me. And I don't want to be demeaning of that. I, I don't know where that originated, and I don't know how it came to be. But this isn't that. This is a simple exhortation to many you you and I have probably had many throughout our life Christian life as we came to faith in Christ uh, as the verse says who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you and it's reflect on that think about them occasionally uh, who remember be mindful of reflect on those who rule over you. Now we're going to unpack this a little bit more because I want to talk about that word it hit me in in the sense of rule, to rule over. Now this is being written prior to the inception of any quasi what we would call formal denominational church in which did not really come to be until the 300s A.D., in which Constantine, the emperor of Rome, had a vision of a cross with him going into battle, and he he interpreted that as as if I carry the cross with me, then, then this God who... Savior is Christ will be with me. And you realize we're 300 years into uh, the church that was birthed in the book of Acts and persecution of Christians and all of that. And so Constantine goes into battle with this cross and he wins the battle. And so he makes a decree. He decrees that every Roman citizen is to now be a Christian. And he, in essence, marries a variety of pagan um, cultures and beliefs with his ideas of Christendom and what was born was 
Roman Catholicism. Now, the reason I bring that up, having just come from Europe, is, oh my goodness. I mean, we saw a lot of beautiful edifices and, and cathedrals, and we walked on more marble and stone than I want to walk on for a little while. But there in Rome, one of the places that we visited, of course, was the crypts of what are called the Capuchin monks. If you've ever read anything about it, is that the Capuchin order, uh, different than the Franciscan, different than the Dominican, actually an offshoot of the Franciscan, was founded in 1528 in Italy, 300 years after the death of St. Francis of Assisi, a small group of friars that grew discontented with the compromises of their Franciscan brothers. Okay, so fast forward from 300 to 1500, and we have the Dark Ages in there and all of that, and you have compromise and corruption and a whole lot of ugly things going on in this thing called the church of Jesus Christ that he died on a cross for. And on the sweat of the backs of multitudes of people, great edifices are built. I mean, they would take marble from Egypt and... and here and there and build these phenomenal buildings. Are they beautiful? Yes. Is God there? No. And enter the whole system of monks because they saw compromise and corruption in the church, of which Martin Luther was one, who was the founder and father of the Protestant movement, but you know when he moved away from Catholicism, he didn't move too, too far, but thank God for that, at least that move, is that the rule, here's my point, those who rule over you, the rule of the people by the papal system for a thousand years or more is not the rule that the author of the book of Hebrews is talking about. To be in a place of leading God's people is not to subject them to servitude and obediences to your uh, whims and uh, the, the great sin of indulgences and that sort of thing. Now, what's happened, you, let's not, be too hard on Roman Catholicism because when you come over to Protestantism, you know, we have within the Protestant uh, historical church lots of corruption and, and deceit and dishonesty and, and overbearing rulers as well, etc., etc. Need I mind, remind us? So the fact of the matter is the church is not perfect. Why? Because it's filled with imperfect people. There's only one who's perfect. His name is Jesus Christ. And the church is to be a place where those of us who recognize we are imperfect can gather together under the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, God, help me. I'm a sinner. Save me. Change me. Fill me. Put me on a course for joy and victory and and a life that is fulfilling. 
to remember those who rule over you. But I want you to notice something within the text because you, you and I, we have to ask the question, well, okay, Pastor Art, if it's not that that you were just talking about, that in uh, unprofitable kind of rule of those who are over others in the church, then how did they rule? I'm so glad you asked. Looked at the verse. It says, who rule over you, comma, how do they rule? Who have spoken the word of God to you. That's how they ruled. The way in which they ruled was to bring the living word of God to the people of God so that there could be growth within the family of God to the glory of God. And the author is just saying, you know, think back and remember them. Remember those all along the way that have spoken the word of God to you. One thing that was clear, um, and I, I didn't do much about the Capuchin order. We went to, I'll sidetrack here for a moment, we went to something called the Crips. And uh, reading verbatim here, they were built in 1626, uh, all the way through 1631 by an order of Pope Urban VIII uh, since his brother Antonio Barberini was a Capuchin brother. Uh, as a cardinal, Barberini had the remains of thousands of Capuchins, thousands, excavated and brought their bones and placed them on walls and uh, what is called the crypts in like works of art and symbols. We walked through those crypts. You would have thought you were revisiting Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm being a little bit of tongue-in-cheek there, but really, I mean, there were clothes on skulls and crossbones, and, and or, they, they excavated thousands of these human bones. Why? Because under that confused... No word understanding of what the Christian faith is to be about. They began to venerate the monks just as they've, just as others have practiced the veneration of saints. They've practiced the veneration of, of the papal system. And if we're not careful in the Protestant movement, we can practice the veneration of great teachers, right? We got to be careful. Hey, you know, be careful lest you yourself fall. And so we went to these crypts anyway. I was like, this is weird. And then we got on a bus and we went to what's called the catacombs. And the catacombs, contrary-wise, were a place where Christians were buried because it became outlawed in Rome to bury uh, the bodies of people. Uh, Christians at that time didn't agree with the pagan custom of burning bodies uh, of the dead, which solved the problem of Rome running out of room, no place to put the dead. So they decided to create these underground cemeteries in which uh, 
These things called the catacombs were created. In Rome, there are more than 60 catacombs made up of hundreds of kilometers of underground passageways that hold thousands of tombs, but currently there are only five open. And so we felt privileged, really, to in the group that we're in to walk through these catacombs and realize that, you know, there was a period of time in the church when even in the midst of confusing doctrine and overbearing rule, uh, an imbalance of what it meant to be a higher up in the church of the day and what it meant to just be a congregant, a great imbalance there. And I am so grateful aren't we, to just be reminded that we are all the same at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation denounces a a hierarchy in the church of Jesus Christ. There is not to be a Well, I've got to go see the priest because the it's just not biblical. I'm sorry. I've got to go see the priest because the priest can forgive my sins. That's not scriptural. And so the author here is endeavoring, like I said, we're not going to get very far, but the author is endeavoring to help the Hebrew realize that even in the old economy of the priesthood under Judaism, and a tendency to recognize that individual as being more spiritual than they and going to them with various uh, forms of sacrifice in order that their sins might be forgiven has now been done away with in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So he says to them, remember those who have spoken the word of God to you and whose faith follow." So maybe through the years you've had uh, teachers who, uh, maybe some of you women have had elder sisters in the uh, Lord who have taught you the word of God. And he encourages the reader there to, to think about that individual's faith and follow that faith. Why? How so? And then he explains it again toward the end of the verse. He says, considering, notice it, the end of verse 7, considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, when you think about those who you and I have esteemed in the Lord highly, they haven't been heretics. They've been solid men or women of God that have spoken the word of God to us in our travels. They've proved themselves faithful not uh, corrupt in their approach to how they lead others or spend time with others. And I would venture to say, not without some uh, exceptions to the rule, but I would venture to say that when we look at such an individual's life, man or woman, faithful in the Lord, faithful to take the word of God to others, faithful to walk with God. 
faithful that when we see that or such a faithful individual, we, when we consider the outcome of their conduct, it's like sometimes in us we go, oh, I hope my life is like that, you know. I, I hope I, I get there or I hope, you know, I am there or I, I, I just want to get closer, Lord. I know others who have seen uh, perhaps family structures or a fatherhood example or, or a mom in God or uh, a young college individual that they've seen someone faithful in Christ. And it's happened to me throughout the years as well. You just go, oh, I want to walk in the Lord like that individual. Why? Because you see the outcome you see the outcome of their conduct. Does any of that make sense? I hope that makes sense to you, that that's what this verse is talking about. Second vignette, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's go ahead and read it together. Ready? Together. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when I came to that after, you know, kind of studying and digging about verse 7, I said, well, how on earth is verse 8 connected with verse 7? I mean, we just, we were in the trenches about what it meant to remember those who ruled over us and spoke the word of God to us, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Ah, I think the answer comes, or and believe the answer did come, when we consider some of the passages in Scripture that talk about the unchangeableness of our God. Now, you recall, back in the book of Numbers, there was a prophet of God named Balaam. And there was a Moabite king named Balak, who really was upset with the Israelites. He did not like those Israelites in his land, in his kingdom, prospering, doing what they do. And he knew that this Balaam guy was supposedly a prophet of the one true God. And some of you probably know the account. Maybe you've read it before. It's been a while since we visited it. It comes to us in chapters 23 of Numbers and 24 and so on. But what Balak did, I'll try and condense it because we're going to run out of time here quickly, is Balak came to Balaam and he said, you know what? I, I want you to curse them. Just can you, can you put a curse on the people of Israel? And uh, to Balaam's discredit, he says, well, I don't know. Let me go inquire of the Lord. I mean, he should have just said to Balak, no, I can't curse them. That's not my place to curse them. But he says, probably out of fear or, you know, unwilling to just be confronted by somebody bigger than him. He says, okay, well, I'll go ask the Lord. So he goes and asks the Lord, can he curse the Lord's people, for Balak. I'll read to you. Numbers 23, verse 17, it says, So he came to him, and there, there he was standing by his burnt offering, 
uh, and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak, uh, Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken to you? So after this exchange where Balaam goes and asks God, can he curse the people of God? He comes back and now Balak wants to know, what did he say? What did he say? Verse 18, he took up his oracle and he said, Rise up, Balak, and hear, listen to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he not said it, and shall he not do it? Has he not spoken it, and will he not make it good? Behold, Balaam says, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed. I cannot reverse it. In other words, you and I as human beings cannot undo the unchangeableness of our God. It's without question that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The psalmist writes in Psalm 102, verse 25 of God, he says... Of old you have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The New Testament writer of the book of James put it this way. He said, James 1.17, that every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, God doesn't change. We had it here in this very book of Hebrews earlier on in the book, in chapter 6, when God was determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath, Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. Christ doesn't change. If you've put your hope and your trust in him today and you look at the changing circumstances around you, realize that it's not him who has changed, it's you and the circumstances. That's not profound in any way, but it's certainly a good thing to remind ourselves of. And that in other words, you and I as believers born again, filled with the Spirit, who remember those who have spoken the word of God to us and are aspiring to follow the faithful, considering when we see the outcome of their lives, they're filled with a joy and a strength that goes beyond compare. It's immovable. Their happiness is not a happiness dependent upon circumstances being uh, okay around them, but rather they have a joy, the joy of the Lord, which is independent of your circumstance. Brother and sister this morning, I ask you, is that joy yours? Do you have it? 
Do you possess it? Are you at times just kind of teetering back and forth depending on how things are going? Oh my goodness, when I look at some of the others of the faithful in Scripture and who have spoken the Word of God to me through the years, I just go, Lord, I want to be that steadfast and that immovable in my joy and relationship with you as well. Because you are the same yesterday. When I first came to you at that hillside around a fire and said, God, my life's out of control. I've tried to navigate from my teens to my late 20s and all I've done is created a a pile of wreckage behind me that I can still see. Lord, would you forgive me and come and take over my life? And he said, yes. When did you come to the Lord? What condition? I wish I had more time. What condition was your soul in when you said yes to Christ? Pause for a moment. Wait for it. Let it sink in. Because he hasn't changed. Now, gracefully he comes in. He forgives. He washes. He cleanses. He begins to spruce up our lives a little bit. And on the outside, we begin to look and think and feel a little better. He still knows what's inside here. If you walk by some individual that's disposed in life and and have no compassion for that individual, realizing, I mean, for me, it's like, but for the grace of God, there go I. You see, I think it's imperative, closing comment, then we'll close. I think it's imperative for you and I this morning to remember that today... He's the same Savior to us that he was when we saw the condition of our need for him and came to him. And that that same Savior will remain that same forever. Are we willing to stay in that place of completely yielded, submitted Willing to have him shape, change, correct, fill, strengthen, and bless our lives. Food for thought for the week ahead. Food for prayer today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us this morning.
Thank you for deliverance, for grace, for peace, for salvation, for hope. Thank you for hardship and trial. Thank you for the family of God. God, help us remember what condition we're in without you. Lord, we're simply a people that are trying to navigate life. But you've given us a promise that apart from you, we can do nothing. So we're here again today, gathered to simply say, Lord, have your way with us. And as you take over, we will continue to give you thanks and praise you all the days of our life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand and we'll close.